Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, Episode 22, Season 2. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to remind you that Personalization Outbreak is your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations about how we should move from ruling by standardization to start leading in today's age of personalization. Now, on that note, we'd appreciate you taking a moment to share your points of view by providing us your comments on our YouTube channel and or send them directly through our new ageofpersonalization.com website, where you can find all our previously recorded podcasts and other resources to start leading in the age of personalization. Finally, we welcome you to, to subscribe on our YouTube channel and hit the notification button so you can stay informed with our growing content library. Now, our guest this week is here to discuss the importance of reducing, minimizing barriers in our higher education system, from simplifying the uh, application process to getting to know and listen to every student. See, Mike McDonough is the eighth president of Raddatin Valley Community College in New Jersey. Now, since 2014, Mike's been working to foster intellectual curiosity, promote leadership, and encourage social responsibility within a diverse population of students and community members. Now, when I had a chance to meet Mike and get to know who he is as an individual, I noticed that Mike solves for sustainable transformation, focusing on opportunities that impact the long-term effectiveness that makes education a dynamic and well-rounded experience. So let's get right into it and see and hear this unique way of thinking as we dive deep into these learning opportunities in higher education. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's uh, great to finally uh, see you. Well, thank you. I, I know we had a technical glitch uh, before we got started, but we're all here together, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Mike. Me you too. know, Mike, I don't know. Just just because I said that, I'm going to throw you an off-the-wall question. Sure. The other day, I, I had the opportunity uh, to speak with a member of the media, and what came up was what makes a conversation relevant and who actually has the permission to say that that conversation is indeed relevant. What are your thoughts? Wow. That's a tough question. Well, um, I told so, you it was off the wall, I mean, so, but, but, but given the state that we're in, what, what sure. comes to mind? So I think what's interesting in, in one of the effects, I think of this crisis that we're all still navigating um, is the number of voices that it has brought to the table. Mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned earlier um, about making the student uh, the center of our enterprise in its entirety. While many of us think that's a natural thing, 
Um, I don't know that our sector has always been doing that. So all of a sudden, the conversation has become multiple conversation. Um, and it's about arriving at solutions, I think, by listening to as many of those voices as possible. Um, in many ways, I have learned, I think, over the past year to be a much better listener. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to talk, um, but I've learned how to listen. So I think a conversation is one in which you hear at least something that allows you to either amend, um, enlarge, or redirect your vision for the institution. So I think they're all relevant. You know, it, it's, that makes sense. I don't know that that makes sense, but uh, well, you know what? The way you said it, it does. I mean, I guess I can make the argument that what is an irrelevant conversation when no one knows all the answers? But right. I could also make the argument that an irrelevant conversation is one that takes us to be that that guides us to fall even deeper into the standardization traps. That yes, are slowing, I, that are yes. slowing us down in today's more personalized world. How's that? No, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, if I could, I think an irrelevant conversation are those that want us to keep doing the same thing um, that we were doing pre-pandemic or during pandemic. Look, this moment, whatever we look at back at it, this has provided us a unique opportunity to really reimagine our institutions, to reimagine our relationships, to really dismantle um, all of those assumptions we were making. And an irrelevant conversation is one that doesn't want to go there, that wants to maintain um, the structure we had and to keep doing what we were doing. I can assure you that that is not sustainable anymore. Not in, not in my sector, not in higher education. Uh, we've been challenged to have much better conversations. You know, Mike, it's interesting, and I say this with all due respect. Notice how we've taken a question that Quite candidly, I wasn't prepared to ask you, um, <laughs> and then I did, and perhaps you weren't prepared for it, but it took just a moment to find our rhythm until we got to what one can say is a thought-provoking response. In other words, we in today's age of personalization, I don't think anyone is fully prepared for any conversation. The question is. Are we willing to put ourselves out there so that together we can navigate yes. and, and create a sense of unity as we try to figure out the answers? And yes. this really propels me to this question. Mike, why do most large educational institutions struggle to forge strategic partnerships? So that's part one of the question. Part two is, why have you and the college why have you both been successful? And what wisdom can you share? Sure. So I, I think all institutions are trying to do the very best they can. 
but I think there becomes a point at which large institutions, and I don't mean this as a kind of dismissive answer, it becomes very difficult to find someone in that institution to partner with. They become these monolithic, slow-moving um, entities that are really sort of realms unto themselves. Um, here at Raritan Valley, we've, we have had to go out and find partners. Um, so very quickly, when the pandemic hit, um, we lost so much of our revenue um, that we quickly had to find partners who could sustain our operation. Um, so we've accelerated conversations with business partners. Um, which, again, speaks to a very different way of educating students. Mm. There's that notion, right? And again, I'm, this is not a criticism, but there's the idea that the ideal post-secondary experience is the student leaves home, lives on campus, goes to all of those packaged courses, has all of those experiences. And again, I am not being critical. But the idea that after all of that experience, and by the way, all of that money, that you leave that institution prepared to do what? So I think we've become incredibly disconnected from work, from the long life that students are going to have when they leave. I think we forgot our community partners. I think we forgot a range of stakeholders that are also invested in this institution. So rather than close the campus, we've really tried to open the gates to welcome people in. Um, and I'll give you another small example. And I'm part of the tradition as well. I recognize that. Um, I was trained as a faculty member a long time ago, uh, believing that the curriculum is uh, the sort of enshrined um, idol um, and that students have to work their way through that at a certain set time. And Why is that? Why is a semester 14 weeks? Why is it a three credit course, we have to meet students where they are. And the students who come to this institution, they work, they have families, they have other things. They want courses that meet on their schedule. They want to be able to accelerate through a course. They want credit for their prior learning uh, assessments. They want me to understand who they are. You know, that's somebody once said, you know, do you really know who your students are? And I'm sorry, but I think a lot of us and I'm blaming myself. I don't think we answer that question very well. I don't you know, think my, we know who they are. You know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, we say that in the age of personalization, uh, one of the most fundamental and most important questions is to ask yourself, do you see me? Do you know me? Right. And the student may not be using those words, but that's what they want to know. Do you, do you see me? Yeah. Do you know me? So 
Based on that, and I don't want you to steer away from partnership because I know you've got a success story if you'd like to share it, is that um, how do you get faculty, um, administration, leaders like yourself uh, to take the time to get to know and see their student? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And I think the answer is. It's an incredibly complex answer, I think. It's a layered answer, right? And I, so I do, think, I do think leadership matters. So I do think institutions have a culture. I think language is important. So I think if leaders are not consistently, so I write a weekly message uh, to my uh, uh, faculty and staff every week. I write a weekly message to the trustees during the pandemic. I wrote a daily message. Um, You've got to to embrace the values that you want your institution um, to to follow. And so as corny as it sounds, um, I do talk about our students and I talk about how can we be compassionate? How can we be empathetic? How can we practice Grace. Um, I am. I think students get second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. So I think you do it at that level. But then I really think the hard part of this is to transform the hierarchical culture on campus. Hmm. And I think you do this by freeing up people uh, from their divisions and simply telling them. Um, I want you to remove the barriers that are in front of this student that are preventing uh, her from accomplishing this goal. That's what your now task is. Remove barriers. Hmm. And I I know it it takes a long time, right? And and we're not there. Um, But we have reduced, I'll give you one example. Um, Applying to college should not be this labyrinth-like quest for the Holy Grail. It should be a relatively easy process. And so we've now reduced that to, you do you have to do four things to come to this college. When we started, you had to do about 12 things just to be a student. Why, why is that? That makes no sense. So, so what did you, what did you decide without getting into the details? Sure. Like, like what, how did you make the decision to cut it back to four? What, I guess, what sure. were the, what were the drivers that led to the four? Sure. Um, so because we live in a very digital age now, uh, no one has a problem getting a hold of me. Uh, <laughs> email or text message. And it doesn't take long. Uh, I'll, you know, two examples. One, which was the how to be a student. I kept getting emails from students that were saying things like, it is crazy that I cannot get enrolled at the college. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that is crazy. And so I remember it very vividly. I called the entire admissions team to a meeting. And I sat down and I said, tell me how I become a student at this college. Mm. And after we had mapped that out, 
I said, I think we all agree that that's ridiculous. So by the end of the week, show me, I, I think I said five steps. They got it down to four. And we're still working on it. So, so that's one thing. And the other thing is you discover, and, I, and, I, and again, I know it sounds like I'm being critical of people, and I'm not. I think institutions really put people in boxes. But we'd become, I think, victim to this notion of saying, well, but that's our policy, not recognizing that we wrote the policy. So let's have another policy. So we immediately just went a little bit hog wild and started to change stuff. Um, but I think that's how you do it. And to go back to your earlier question um, about those wonderfully inspiring, huge flagship universities, um, that's like trying to turn, you know, one of those oil tankers uh, around. I do appreciate it's much easier for us. I mean, we only have about uh, 800 full-time, part-time staff. We can turn this around pretty quickly. We can be agile. Uh, we can say, um, and, I've, and I've said, everybody do what they need to do and I'll cover for you. You'll never get into trouble for, for, for helping a student, and you won't. If it's helping a student, do it. So. Um, I'll get eventually come back to partnership, Mike, but <laughs> you, 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 what do you, what do you think have been, uh, what do you think the, the biggest barriers will be, uh, to student success moving forward? Sure. So, so putting aside and, for and, a moment, and by the way, Mike, I'm well, sorry, if you can try to give us that answer through the lens of a community college. Sure. Sure. And then how does that prepare for a student's success as they move forward, whatever that sure. might mean? Sure. So, and again, I, I apologize if my answers are all over the place. No, uh, by the way, Mike, your answers aren't, oh, they're, they're great. And, okay. you know, and the uh, other thing too, and I, and I hope this hasn't come across the wrong way, is that, um, you know, in the age of personalization, um, there's no need for permission. I mean, we could always be respectful. Right. I think people want the truth. Sure. And what you're doing is you're being courageous enough to share what your truths are. So it's okay. all good. Okay. It's very good. inspiring. I think a lot of people, you good. know, and I, I'm going to get Scott to jump in here in just a moment, but sure. I think that's the part of what I'm recognizing, whether it's in healthcare or, or higher ed or corporate yeah. is that we're, we're, we're almost creating many barriers by not just saying it rather right. than kind of being careful. So I hope yeah. you took that with all yeah, your no, I, I got no, I, I heard you. I mean, your first class, your intentions are very good. <laughs> so I, so your question about the bad and, and I loved that you said through a community college lens, because that's a really important lens, right? Because we are. Um, for many, many learners, their only point of access mm. to college. Um, and because of where we live in this country, all of the wonderful fruits of that education, of mobility, of improved health care, uh, of an enriched personal life, of civic engagement, 
all of those things that I think really speak to the promise, right, of this wonderful experimental republic we live in. And I, and, I, and, I, and I know it's corny. Community colleges are a unique expression uh, of American optimism. They, they really are. But, but let's also recognize then the barriers. We will put aside a major barrier, which is the funding piece, literally paying for college, which has become for some students um, an epic struggle. And nothing makes me crazy because it doesn't need to be that way. But we'll put aside that for a moment. Uh, the second barrier is that we attract students who have been told in no uncertain terms that college is not for them. Um, and, and I don't think we need to say any more because we know who those students often are. Um, and we are a place that says, no, you are welcome here because we don't believe that your um, ability is measured either at one moment in time on a placement test um, or in a GPA of a high school because we all develop in different ways and in different times. So, so there's that. Many of our students work. That is also a barrier. Their, their effort to balance their work and their study. It, our students are all inspiring. They, I, they do stuff I couldn't do. Um, I think the other piece for a lot of students right now is they're not convinced that what we offer will serve them well in the marketplace of the career and job market. Hmm. Um, they are, uh, because I talk to students and I hear them say, that's not an investment that I think is going to pay off. So there's lots of conversations we have to have with our students to, to get them here. Um, and But once they do get here, um, our students flourish, whether they're going to go to a four-year institution whether we're preparing them for careers. Um, but I really appreciate your question. And the pandemic has merely accelerated, I think, some troubling patterns that were already in the culture of, of higher education. So we should all be very concerned that people are not going to post-secondary education. And I'll say one last thing. We are, we are far too addicted in this country to the idea that the only credential is a four-year baccalaureate degree. We have got to understand that post-secondary education offers an infinite opportunity for credentials that are academic, or workforce, and more importantly, lifelong. So I think that's a barrier too. So, so a couple of things, Mike, real quick, and then I'm going to ask, after this question, I'm going to ask you to jump in, Scott. But um, so what do you think are the critical steps to diversify a student population, especially for a school that hasn't historically attracted uh, diverse students? What's sure. your take on that? Because part sure. of the way I see 
community colleges and is that it's almost a gateway, a funnel to those diverse populations that maybe didn't meet the standards to go right into a four-year university, or maybe from a socioeconomic standpoint, it was just too much to bear. Uh, So what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Sure. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go back to your earlier question. I do think a large part of this is about partnerships. I think we have got to pause and I think we've got to really understand what is my relationship to the K through 12 districts that I serve? Mm. Uh, Because for so long, we've sort of recused ourselves from that conversation. Oh, that's K through 12. They're going to do what they do, and then there's going to be a placement uh, or a national assessment like the SAT, and we're going to have some cutoff somewhere. Um, I think we need to reinvent our relationship with the, not just the high school. I think it's too late. And, And you know as well as I, we get students that are not college ready. They've graduated high school. They're not college ready, and they come here looking for an opportunity. We're more than happy to provide the opportunity. The reality is that it is very difficult to propel those students through remediation into a college credit course and through their degree. Let's not pretend that that's easy. It is not. So why aren't I in the seventh grade and the eighth grade, talking to those teachers, looking at those students that are falling behind in terms of readiness. Why aren't we bringing our resources into that arena and and stop this artificial, well, that's high school, this is college, and this is graduate school, right? I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. It, well, isn't this go? Doesn't this go back to do you see me? Do you know me? I mean, shouldn't it? Shouldn't we be just as in touch with that student from the earlier stages of their academic life Absolutely. to the point that they reach Raritan? I mean, it just seems to me that Raritan shouldn't be the first place we begin to engage and understand a student's journey. Right. And if we do think about that question, that's where the other partnerships come in. That's where those um, either community-based organizations that are also trying to uplift their membership or their faith-based memberships. I, I, it doesn't matter to me where those uh, groups are. I need their help in getting those students here. Take the FAFSA. You've got to fill out your FAFSA to get your, you know, your Pell Grant. Uh, my son, who's a high school senior, I tried to fill it out. I couldn't fill it out. So if I'm having trouble filling the form out, that's a barrier. That's a problem. Let's get into those communities. Let's get those applications. Whether they come here or not, I don't care. But let's start propelling these students through. Let's start saying to these students, and I loved what you said, they do matter. They have potential. Everybody's got talent. Not everybody has equal access to opportunity. That's where I want this college to step in. That's excellent, Mike. Okay, Scott, where are we? What are you thinking? Uh, I'm 
thinking that there's there's so many good pieces in here. I mean, these are trees of wisdom, like left and right. And 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 Mike, you're really doing it's really fascinating to watch you navigate all these trees and pointing out why this one's here and what this one does and for us um, and the in this ecosystem. Um, that said, I think at least in our conversation, we're so in, amazed with all these amazing things that you're showing us that I think, Glenn, we're missing a, a real big opportunity to, to pick something up from Mike. And that is his leadership ethos. I'm hearing and seeing elements and characteristics of his leadership in the age of personalization that I don't see elsewhere and I haven't heard articulated in the same words. And we need to take note of this. First one, it's two terms. And I would characterize this by using the terms, one term that you gave me, Mike, and that is grace. And the other term is applied compassion. You, what I'm seeing in terms of your major framing for all of these things that you're talking to us about, your proclivities, your ethos, what you're thinking about in terms of students, connections to K to 12, all of this, it, it comes from one, the grace that you live and manifest, right? But also receive, but it also comes from what I would say, and these are connected, your applied compassion. Compassion is one thing, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Applied compassion is another. And just to drive that home, I just want to note that, that, that what, what empowers that is essentially your honest self-awareness. Every time that you mention anything that is revolutionarily awesome, you say, now hang in there. I might be a little bit off. You're inviting to your great idea. You're inviting people to add to it. You're not saying this is how it goes because I know it and here's the idea. But you're through sure. your open and honest sort of uh, framing of yourself. You're inviting um, inclusion in terms of these strategies that, that are coming from grace and applied compassion. Um, the, the last thing I'm going to say is to bring this back home to, to the first point, which I'll probably come back to at the very, very end, Glenn. And that is when we ask you in this podcast, how do we know a relevant conversation? The only reason you struggled for a minute is because you were trying to figure out how does a leader with grace and applied compassion respond to that? Because I could see you saw problems with that question to begin with. And your answer was every conversation is essential and relevant. Right. right? And so, so with that, I just want to say thank you very much for, oh, for demonstrating not just uh, leadership in the age of personalization, but for broadening that leadership profile, because there isn't a singular, a singular profile. And where you are in the community college system, this works well for, for that system. But I tell you, I think it would work structurally any place you go, including your own family. Right. Anyway, that's, that's, that's what I'm seeing, Glenn. Thank you. <laughs> that's excellent. Thank yeah, you, Scott. You know, Scott really, you can see Mike takes it to a yeah. whole other dimension. But yeah. what Scott does very well is he listens. Yeah, no and, kidding. You know, and part of uh, being inclusive right. is being a great listener. Yeah. So how do we begin to listen better? I mean, look, I think yeah. that we can all agree, uh, yeah. Mike, that the luxury of time is over. Um, I'm yeah. concerned that yeah. we're that that the that educational institutions, uh, they're all trying to figure out what's best. Yeah. Uh, they're hearing what parents are saying. They're listening to their students at least i hope it's clear that you are and your yeah. your team but how do we listen better at a time where um we have to stop listening to ourselves yeah mm -hmm. i i think that's a brilliant 
That's not only a brilliant question, but it's actually um, a stunningly accurate description of the moment that we find ourselves in. Um, I feel like I am running at 100 miles an hour, and at the same time that everything is moving in slow motion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think we're all missing the, the moment. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer. Um, and I am struck, you know, your notion of time. And I, and I really want to thank Scott because he's so, if I could share just a personal story that will mean nothing, but um, so, so, so my mom and dad were, um, uh, they had both left school at the age of 12. They were both uh, very working class folks, uh, members of the great generation. Uh, my mom, my mom was Scottish. And for at least 40 years of her life, uh, she cleaned um, a cafeteria in a very large uh, uh, industrial uh, plant. And, and I was always embarrassed by what I thought was my mom's deference to almost everybody she met, because I thought she thought they were better than she was. Time, though, and I would get very angry and very upset. Um, time, however, uh, revealed uh, the enormous grace of my mom, whose wonderful ability was to treat everybody with kindness and respect and patience and deference. And I suddenly realized maybe I should start behaving in my professional way like that. Because I think up until that point, I thought it was about me. And that's, we need to get out of our own ways. And, you know, it goes back to that first conversation. I, I need to let these other people speak. If I'm putting, if I'm talking about how students best learn, maybe I should ask the students um, instead of thinking, well, I'm the president. Of course I know. Um, so I think it's, for me, it, I guess it is personal. I, I don't have a highly developed theory. Um, I try to remember my mom who made everybody just feel so much better about themselves um, and, and cleaned that cafeteria every day. So I, it's not an answer to your question. It is. Um, but I Actually, think, you know, uh, it is, Mike. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what I got out of this. First of all, um, I'm, uh, you're very fortunate to have had a mother like that. Absolutely. And Absolutely. what I heard you say is, Remove hierarchy. Be graceful. Yeah. Be in the moment. Be present. Yeah. And take the time to remember the wisdom that was shared. That now it's your responsibility to not only share it with others, but right. make sure that the thread of the wisdom that your mom shared with you is represented in the legacy that you help yeah. create for others. That's yeah. what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, look, it's, it, I, I have the best job. I, I love this job. 
Um, I'm lucky to have it. Um, I have a great team. And, you know, we haven't talked about that. It's about inspiring and being inspired by the people that I work with every day. So, so tell us how your team has been forced, not assuming that it wasn't inclusive before, right. but how has this moment in time accelerated yeah. your team to be more inclusive than it's ever been? Yeah, I, that's, it has. And, and, and so you know, we, on March the 13th, right? Can you believe that? It's almost a year ago, I, I closed the college down. We sent 8,000 students home. We put 2,400 courses in an instant online. Some worked, some didn't. Everybody left campus. Um, and it has been since then. Um, you know, the stakes are incredibly high. Um, the state funding just vanished. And all of a sudden, we're in a meeting deciding what's what's critical service because I just lost $2 million. And our budget, a dollar matters, right? Um, and above all, how do we maintain student learning? So that became our our mantra. We had three principles from March the 13th. We're going to maintain student uh, learning. We are going to keep everyone whole, safe, and healthy and connected. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that this college will be here next year and the year after and the year after. Because I think we were all aware that the decisions we were making were so profound in terms of the future of the college. And we and my team, and it's them, they deserve all the credit for this. They have kept those three goals always in mind. So when we have our Zoom meetings, you know, almost daily, we always return. So when somebody when we make a decision, we try to check off. Does it meet? Are we are we confident with that? Because we've got to make these decisions, uh, and and boy, are we making them! Uh, but those three boxes provide the checks, and we're all on the same page. It's a small team. It's just seven other people, um, and me, and I'm lucky because they've just been amazingly uh, brilliant. That brilliant team. Well, they're 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 fortunate to have you uh, too, Mike. And and you know, as we get close to closing now, Mike, I've got just a couple more questions. First, can you take us back to partnerships? Yes. Um, is there an example that you can share of a successful one of the probably many successful partnerships you've been able to forge? Recently? Sure. And again, I, I, I'm almost, I, well, I am apologizing because it's one that has a lot of meaning for me. Of course. Um, so about five or six years ago, um, I got an email uh, from a parent um, that was a, an incredibly strident, um, a little bit angry, and profoundly moving. Uh, <laughs> her son... Um, had an intellectual uh, disability, 
Um, and she wanted to know why can't he go to college? And I didn't have a good answer. So we convened a meeting uh, with the parent group. And we brought in the two ARCs that deal with uh, students with intellectual and developmental disability. And six years ago, we started a three-year, three-day residential program for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Hmm. There are now uh, 47 students um, in the program. We've had two graduating classes. Five of those students have gone on to become regular credit students. The bulk do not. Um, but if the purpose of higher education is distilled into the graduation, um, I would invite you to come to the graduation of those 20 students um, because it reminds you we talk a lot about transformative power, and we don't often see it writ large. Um, you see it in those students. And that program is solely because of those partnerships with parents, with the ARCs, with funding agencies. I mean, it's all a delicate sort of mosaic. Mm. You take one piece away, and it doesn't exist. Um, I'm, that's, for me, um, that's what we should be doing. There's a group of students um, that don't come to college. Mm. They need to come to college. And so that was one partnership that I'm really particularly, um, I, I think the college did an awesome job. Mike, wow. Mike why do you care so much? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think my, you know, I'm getting older and I'm getting very sentimental. Um, but, you know, I, I come, I'm an only child. My parents were a little older. Um, and, I, and I don't know that I was growing up um, a great son. I don't know that I understood who my mom and dad were. Um, my mom lived until she was 97 years old. Um, she lived in the house I grew up in. It's the house that's, you know, it's the size of a Tic Tac. Um, but I finally had the luxury of being able to tell her um, what you had said earlier, you know, what a remarkable woman uh, you are. And she was so naturally proud of me. Um, so who am I not to look at the students here? every single one of them um, and think I'm going to be proud of them too. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's an answer, but I think it it's my mom and dad, you know? I think it's a great answer. <laughs> and, and this is why I asked, is it, is it your, your, your level of compassion and care runs so deep. You can't help it. I well, I don't. I think everybody deserves a chance. Hey, and you're talking I, to someone, Mike, that roots for the underdog. Right, right. I right. I I think that's. I think it's important. That's what I love. So when I grew up, you know, I grew up in England, and you get one chance at the age of eighteen. When I was, this was back in the seventies. 
You got one chance. You either did well and you could go to college or you didn't. Um, and, and, and I lucked out and I did well. Um, but it shouldn't be that. Everybody gets um, an opportunity um, and another one and another one and another one. That's, I think that's the point because um, it does matter. And there's, a, there's a, one of my favorite authors is William Kennedy. Uh, he wrote Iron League, uh, which is a Jack Nicholson movie as well. But, but there's a wonderful line in one of his books that says one of the most beautiful things you can do is offer a hand of help. Hmm. And, and I, think that's, I think that's right. I think teaching, I think, I think we're a helping profession. I think that's the point. If we're not helping, find another job. That's beautifully said. Yeah. Scott, uh, can you wrap this up? And then I'm going to ask yeah. Mike for some final words. Cool. Um, it's humanity, man. That's you. You, that's your lens. That's your frame, dude. I mean, you have a lot of ways to express it. And so I think, you know, we could find ways to categorize it and put it into charts and flow charts so other people can follow. But I think the most important thing that, that came from you today in terms of what was the relevant conversation, right? If we were going to play with our words, it was all relevant. We know that. But what, what, what do we find? What do we want to put a little check mark next to? And that is the conversation about you, yourself, and your family. and your humanity, because that's where we got to see how your, your grace and applied compassion emerges. And that's where we see the power. And so, so ultimately, you, not, you don't just see all of humanity and say, oh, people should help them. You don't just hear and say, oh, I hear what you're saying. But actually, you engage all humanity. If somebody comes to the school and hasn't been allowed in before, your first question is, well, that's a problem. Let's right. change that. So I really appreciate that. And then the last thing I'll say, just to bring it back Thank to that you. relevant conversation piece, is that just to, uh, I have to bring a little science every week just because it's my little sure. thing. Um, there was a recent study I just read, and so I don't even have the author in my head uh, permanently yet. I'd have to go back and look at my notes because it was just this week I saw this report in which they uh, essentially did um, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pairings of people in conversations and under a few different contexts to see, in fact, if the partners finish the conversation early or late, meaning did I want to finish this earlier or did I stick around kind of clumsily and just kept talking about whatever the weather and things like right. that. And what they found was everybody at the end of a conversation, even the big talkers versus the quiet talkers, everybody thinks it went way too long. And so, so I think one thing we could do is take that science and recognize Maybe we're overcomplicating things. And yeah. maybe if we don't really understand what to do in this age of personalization as a leader or as a person is to remember that we are a person. And what a person does is recognize humanity through spreading and receiving love. So my dear friend, my <laughs> graceful, applied, compassionate leader, Thank you for these observations. I didn't think we'd go here, but you basically said, listen to your mother. And you know what? I'm going to listen to my mother because she reminds me an awful lot of what you talked about with your mother. And I know that uh, Glenn could say the same. But anyway, Glenn, uh, let me turn it back to you. Uh, and if, you if, if there's a chance, we have to have him back because I think we need a whole session on, on, on what Mike talks about with self-care. Because everything he talked about was bigger than himself, which is great. But I do want to kind of maybe have another conversation another day where we could talk about how does one 
who has listening and engaging on all levels at all hours of the day in the midst of a pandemic, how, was, how does one maintain strength and keep those batteries charged to make sure that you can be the human, the graceful human with applied compassion that you are. Anyway, sorry. Thank <laughs> you. So, so Mike, any closing or parting thoughts? No, I mean, I, I think, I, I just want to thank you. This is an important moment for higher ed. Um, and I think only good will come from conversations. I think this is important. Um, and I think we've got to seize this moment. We can reinvent. Uh, we can do the traditional things. We do them well. Um, but I think we can be a much more inclusive sector and welcome in um, everybody. So um, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, this was fun. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. It was very kind of you uh, to to take this time with me. Oh no, Mike, it's been our pleasure and. Now, as we always close the show, in the age of uh, in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. What can I say, Mike? Thank you so much for your 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 time, your wisdom uh, and thanks for caring so much. We'll have you back. You have a great day, Mike. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.